and welcome to A Dose of Nature, the podcast all about the health of humans, the health of the environment and all of the connections in between. My name's Jake Robinson and I'm your host. On this podcast we discuss a wide range of topics including the microbiome, nature connectedness, mental well-being, all the way to biodiversity conservation and planetary health. Our discussions combine both natural and social sciences as both play essential roles in how we understand this close-knit relationship between nature and health. By understanding this relationship, we can then talk about how to promote the mutual benefits for humans and the environment, both now and in the future. We have an awesome guest on today, Professor Graham Rook from UCL, that's University College London. Graham is a world-renowned emeritus professor of medical microbiology and has had a really colourful career. He's published widely on topics including endocrinology, immunology, microbiology, neuroscience and depression. So Graham, thank you very much for coming on the show and welcome. Well, I'm... I'm delighted to be here. I, I love talking about this topic and will happily do so at great length. Okay, awesome. I'm really excited to talk to you. Maybe if you could start off by telling us a bit about yourself, including a brief timeline of your career. Well, I, I studied natural sciences at, at Cambridge University. Um, at that time, there was no medical school in Cambridge, so one did a basic science degree. But then I wanted to qualify in medicine as well, because I wanted to be sure that the research that I did was orientated towards genuine human problems. Okay. So then I had to move to London, where I did clinical medicine at St. Thomas's Hospital. And then... During this period, I'd become fascinated by immunology, which was fairly new at the time. You know, we're talking about the late 1960s here. And immunology as an independent discipline was quite new, and it was a very exciting new thing to get into. So I went to the Middlesex Hospital Medical School, which at that time was probably the best immunology department in London, and started to work on tuberculosis, the pathogenesis of tuberculosis. The problem was that I'd adopted this topic because I thought it was difficult, and it turned out that it is indeed. It remains difficult. And neither I nor any other immunologist in the field, I think it's fair to say, achieved anything during those decades (laughs) that actually improved the management of the tuberculosis patient in any way whatsoever. I suspect the situation is still the same. But during those years of working on tuberculosis, we noticed a whole lot of things about this particular genus of bacteria from which tuberculosis is is a member, the the mycobacteria, which made us start to view the relationship between humans and microorganisms in a completely different way from from what I'd been taught in the late 1960s in Cambridge. For instance, we realised that tuberculosis probably co-evolved with humans and spread with different populations of humans as they spread around the globe so that people in different parts of the world have, have strains of TB which are kind of adapted to them and to which they themselves are adapted We also noticed that there was more and more evidence that being infected subclinically with mycobacteria might actually be good for you, Mm. especially if you have a relatively short lifespan and if you're starving, because it does things to your immune system and it also provides an essential nutrient called nicotinamide. And we knew that in developing countries, one often found mycobacteria in people's tissues. And we know now that BCG, the the vaccine which is derived from a bovine strain of TB, actually increases survival from all causes. You know, it's, it's nothing to do with de- protecting you from TB. It may do that as well in, in children, perhaps. But it's actually good for you in some curious way. Right, yeah. So I'm familiar with uh, your work and Chris Lowry's work on um, mycobacterium vacci, which could potentially be beneficial for your health. Um, it's been shown, obviously, in animal models. That just happens to be the environmental mycobacterium that we started to get interested in. And the reason we got interested in it was that we realised that people did become immunologically um, sensitised by the environmental organisms in the environment in which they themselves lived. You You could tell where somebody lived, where they were brought up, by skin testing them with reagents prepared from these organisms because they would recognise the organisms present in their own environment. Now, that was fascinating because we found that one of these organisms, the one you've mentioned, the Mycobacterium vacui, which was just the one we chose to study, was actually able to turn on what are called regulatory lymphocytes in in, in experimental animals, Treg for short. And that seemed an incredibly interesting property. And then through a whole series of rather serendipitous happenings, it also emerged that when you immunize animals with this organism, it actually had effects on certain neurons in the brain that use serotonin and would even block the effects of stress on animals in in, in an experimental model. 
So we were seeing these peculiar effects of mycobacteria at a time when in the, the, the rest of the medical profession was documenting the fact that there were massive increases in several types of, of, of disorder. Firstly, there were what I like to call the forbidden target disorders. That's the disorders where the immune system is attacking things it shouldn't attack, like trivial pollen in the air or, or something in your food. So in other words, allergic disorders. Sure. And also the immune system increasingly attacks our own tissues, you know, in autoimmune disorders. Well, it clearly shouldn't be doing that. And the immune system also tends to attack the contents of our gut. Well, obviously, the organisms in your gut and the food you've just eaten, you don't want your immune system attacking those. So all of that is quite wrong and shouldn't be happening and implies that the immune system is not regulated correctly. But we had just found that organisms in the environment were turning on the systems that regulate the immune system. Obviously, it made one think. And then, of course, another thing that was increasing, to the extent that now WHO thinks it may become the most important disorder, most important illness of mankind, is depression. And what we had, in effect, found was that this organism from the environment would also block the induction of depression through external stressors in experimental animals. And that, again, could be linked to regulation of the immune system, because if you have chronically raised levels of inflammatory mediators, of molecules generated by inflammatory responses in your peripheral blood, you are at greater risk of depression and various other psychiatric problems, as well as being at greater risk of metabolic disorders and obesity and, and cardiovascular disease. So in other words, we had two sorts of disorder which were increasing. The ones where the immune system is attacking things it should not be attacking, the forbidden targets, and the ones that are related to a failure to turn off inflammatory responses which shouldn't be there because they're no longer required okay i mean in a developing country what you usually find is that people have no evidence of inflammation until they get an infection then the inflammation appears when the infection goes away the inflammation goes away but if you look at people in western countries in the united states or um, in this lecture hall if it were one you, you find people who have permanently raised levels of these mediators of inflammation and those people are at risk of all these disorders I've been talking about. So, right, so are there other uh, groups or species of microbiota that are known to influence the immune system in animal models or not? Oh, oh certainly, yes. I mean, we're not, not pretending that the mycobacteria, or, or I'm certainly not pretending that the one particular species we have tended to study are unique in this respect. All it did was change completely our, our attitude to the relationship between humans and the organisms in the environment. Sure. And, and of course, this began to to feed into the, um, the way in, in, in which people were talking about this, the, the new concept, the hygiene hypothesis. Okay, Graham. So uh, what are your views in general on spending time in natural environments to uh, enhance health and well-being? Well, obviously, if the notion that contact with microorganisms in the environment is actually beneficial for our health, particularly perhaps by improving the regulation of our immune systems, then there must be evidence that contact with the natural environment is good for us. And, of course, there is a huge amount of evidence that that is so, epidemiological studies comparing rural populations and urban populations. Now, of course, people have tended to assume that they know why that is. I mean, for instance, in the natural environment, there may be less pollution, and, and moreover, trees actually help to absorb some of that pollution. And then if you go out into the natural environment, you're probably exposed to more sun. Well, vitamin D is good for you. You may get more exercise. Um, and there may be more socialising, especially if you go walking in the natural environment with a cute dog. And, and then there are, there are short-term effects of, of, of relaxation. I mean, if you, put, if you compare people in, in the natural environment with people walking down a, a busy city street, you can show with simple physiological tests that the ones in the natural environment are more relaxed. So do you think this is the natural environment itself or the fact that in this scenario we're not in the noisy, busy, polluted environment? Well, of course, that's a very difficult question because... It, it might be that the guy in the city street would get the same relaxation if he nipped into the local bar and sat down watching um, cute kitten movies while drinking his favourite drink. And so the question of whether there's anything psychologically special about the natural environment or whether it's merely a form of relaxation is, is not entirely answered. But it's entirely possible that there is something special because of the phenomenon of habitat selection. I mean, all creatures are designed to kind of feel contented um, when they see the kind of habitat for which they evolved and, and in which they will thrive. I mean, that makes sense. 
I mean, and of course, humans evolved in wooded grassland beside water, which might be rivers or lakes or, or, the, or the shoreline. That's the environment that we like. So this is the kind of biophilia hypothesis. Yes. Yeah, so there almost certainly is a, a hardwired psychological effect. Sure. But all the epidemiology suggests that these things I've just listed, these excellent reasons for going into the natural environment, do not explain wholly what's going on. In particular, they don't explain the long-term increased survival, the long-term lower incidences of chronic disorders in people in rural environments. And, of course, that's where the evidence that, there is, that it's crucial that you contact the microbial environment becomes so interesting. In fact, you can trace this notion, or almost trace it back, to the late 19th century, because hay fever had been very well described, it's such an easy condition to describe, in the early 19th century. And by the late 19th century, a chap called Charles Harrison Blackley published a book in 1873 saying that the strange thing is that hay fever seems to be very common amongst the rich people in towns and the aristocrats, but not amongst farmers, that farmers do not appear to get hay fever. And this all fits with more and more studies showing that even something like hay fever is affected by your contact with the natural environment. One of the nicest um, examples of this is an experiment that was set up in a way by, by Stalin, because after the Second World War, Stalin invaded part of Karelia, which is an area between Finland and Russia, and the result is that half of the Karelians now live in Russia, or have done since the end of the Second World War, and half live in Finland. Now, the ones in Russia have just been forgotten about once they were taken over. The ones in Finland, Finland is a super-modern, super-modernized, um, highly developed and well-organized country. Sure. And the Finns have much higher levels of autoimmune disorders and of allergic disorders. In other words, much higher levels of these disorders where the immune system is incorrectly regulated. And it turns out that you can find major differences, not just in the microbiota of their homes, the microorganisms in their homes, but also the microorganisms in the guts of infants. And the, in fact, the, I, I won't go into the details of this, but the differences in the organisms in the guts of the infants in Russian Karelians and Finnish Karelians provide actually a very nice mechanism to explain the differences in the efficiency of regulation of their immune systems. Mm, I guess it's no coincidence then that there's so many microbiome-based studies that are coming from Finland then. Oh, indeed. The Finns have done some wonderful work on this, but actually so have many other groups. Another one that basically beautifully points out that the aesthetic effect of the natural environment is not the whole answer and that there's something else going on. It is a study that was published recently in the New England Journal of Medicine looking at two German tribes, I think one could call them, who farm in the United States. One of these is called the Hutterites, and they are super industrialized, and the other are called the Amish, who use horses for all transport and, and do not use modern farming methods. And just like the comparison between the, the, the Russian Karelians and the Finnish Karelians, what one finds is that although the Hutterites and the Amish all live in the country, so they're all being exposed to the green environment, the Hutterites, who do not contact that environment intimately in the same way, have high levels of allergic disorders and biomarkers of inflammation in their peripheral blood, whereas the Amish, who live in a traditional manner and, and really do contact their natural environment, they actually have very low levels of allergic disorders and increased levels of markers of immunoregulation in their peripheral blood. Right, so that's a strong indicator then. Okay, cheers, Graham. For those that don't know, uh, can you explain what the old friends hypothesis is then and how this differs from the uh, hygiene hypothesis? Right, well, the, this, this idea that one needs to contact microorganisms from the environment really feeds into the hypothesis that was produced from 1989 onwards which got called the hygiene hypothesis. And this name has been a bit of a disaster because it leads people to interpret the findings in a way that is actually quite wrong. And the old friend's hypothesis is an attempt to correct and update the hygiene hypothesis. Now, the hygiene hypothesis arose because a paper published in 1989 noticed that children who had a lot of older siblings during early childhood were less likely to develop hay fever. 
particularly if the older siblings were little boys. So there was the idea that dirty older brothers were somehow, uh, somehow particularly protective. So the idea arose then that, well, maybe hygiene in a family was stopping transmission of the infections of childhood to the children, to the, and, and that this somehow meant that their immune systems didn't develop correctly. But there was a big problem with this, which is that the childhood infections are what are called crowd infections. The childhood infections could not have become essential components of the functioning of our immune system because they weren't there during our evolution. Sure. And in fact, to take the obvious example, measles, for instance, some people think measles didn't start to affect human populations until the 12th century. That may be pushing it too far, but others think that a better date would be to say sometime during the Roman Empire. Before that, measles didn't stand a chance in human populations because the populations were not big enough because measles either kills you or makes you completely immune. So our ancestors, which were hunter-gatherer groups wandering around the world, in, you know, totally isolated from other hunter-gatherer groups or just occasionally exchanging contact, um, they could not have had the crowd infections. So this raised the question then, well, if there are microorganisms out there that we need to encounter in order to keep our immune systems in trim, which microorganisms are they? And why did those microorganisms become essential to our physiology? Why did, and which ones did we co-evolve with? And it's really, once one starts to think like that, that one comes to what we call the old friends hypothesis, because those organisms we now call the old friends, and they really come into three categories. That the microbiota, those are the ones that actually live in and on us, and particularly in the gut, and the organisms from the natural environment, which is how we got into this story in the first place, and which is really perhaps the main topic of this podcast, and then perhaps some of the old infections, which are the ones that could persist in small hunter-gatherer groups. Because if you were going to be an infection that could persist in a small hunter-gatherer group, it had to be an infection that didn't kill anybody and that could persist in that group for life. So this has a quite different kind of relationship to the individual from something like measles, a crowd infection, which either kills you or gets itself killed and, and rejected by your immune system. Okay, so you said that the, uh, the, the labelling of the hygiene hypothesis is quite a dangerous thing because it could potentially influence people's behaviour in terms of becoming less hygienic, which can obviously have uh, quite major health implications. Yes, it's a sort of name for a hypothesis which sounds so easy to understand that people assume that they do understand it. And even some of my medical colleagues are guilty of telling the media and telling the public that, in fact, we are too clean for our own good. It's simply not true. There is virtually no evidence that, except under exceptional circumstances, which I will mention later, that hygiene has got anything to do with stopping our contact with the organisms that we do indeed need to contact. And in order to work out why this is so, one has to think what those organisms are, why we are dependent upon them, what they actually do for us, and what it is about modern life that is blocking our contact with them. And putting out the idea that, that we should abandon hygiene because it's bad for us is, is as dangerous as the stupidities that the anti-vaccine people come out with. I mean, basically, the anti-vaccine people have killed children from measles this year already. And I suspect that anti-hygiene people, if that becomes a powerful movement, will be guilty of even more deaths. And it's wrong. It's not why we are deprived of these microorganisms. Sure. So I've read a paper that suggests that the turnover of microbiota within a home, for example, is so rapid. So that even in the what some might consider a highly hygienic home, there are still a large amount of microbes uh, residing there. Yes, absolutely. Bacteria are everywhere. The only way in which perhaps hygiene is sometimes detrimental is when it blocks transmission of maternal microbiota to the baby. So this really leads on to the whole question of, of the, the three types of old friend, the, the microbiota, the organisms of the natural environment, and the old infections, and why we actually need to, to encounter these. And I, I often use a, a sort of computer analogy for this. Think of our, our immune system as a sort of computer, which at birth is like a, a computer with hardware and software, but no data. But why does it need these data? To understand all this, we first have to go back in evolution a little bit. If you go back as far as things like insects and worms and so on, the organisms that get taken in from the environment are, are sort of excluded from 
the insect or the worm, in a kind of chitin barrier, chitin sac. And the enzymes that digest the food go through this chitin barrier and digest the food, and then the, the goodies that have been digested go back through the chitin barrier into the animal. Sure. But the organisms are kept pretty separate from the animal. And some of these organisms are actually quite important to the animal, but they're, they're not very diverse, there are not very many of them, and their relationship to the host is not very close. I mean, bees, for instance, have seven or eight species of bacteria in their guts, and they're separated from the host by the chitin barrier. But what happened in the vertebrates is that instead of having a chitin barrier, we have a, a mucus barrier on the, the, the gut epithelium, and that mucus actually acts as, as food for certain critical organisms, and those organisms actually sit in the outer parts of the mucin barrier. They feed on the mucin, and they produce molecules and signals which are relevant to the physiology of the vertebrate. And in fact, we now have um, hundreds, thousands of different species of bacteria. We have kilograms of these bacteria in our guts. We have more bacteria in our guts than we have human cells in our entire body. And when you think that there are hundreds of different species there, in terms of the amount of DNA and the number of genes that are expressed, we're talking about many hundreds of times more bacterial genes than human genes. And it turns out that these microorganisms in the gut are actually playing a role. They've co-evolved with us. They're playing a role in the development of essentially all organ systems and indeed in the actual continuing function of those organ systems. Sure, so it might just be worth mentioning that it's not just an immunological benefit attached to these microbiota, uh, they're also essential for several other fundamental biological processes um, that keep the human body going, essentially. Indeed, my particular emphasis is on the immunoregulatory aspects, but for instance, if a germ-free mouse um, is not only a very fragile animal, it's a mouse delivered by caesarean section into a sterile environment, so it has no gut microbiota. It's not only a very fragile creature, it also has abnormal brain function. Its brain doesn't develop correctly. And in fact, you, it won't develop a normal brain function unless you put back a microbiota very, very early in life. And it's also worth remembering that 20, 30, nobody knows, percent of the small molecules in the peripheral blood of a human are not human metabolic products. They are bacterial metabolic products. And many of these molecules have powerful physiological functions. They are a part of our physiology. Now, my particular concern today is the immune system because we had to develop a whole new kind of immune system to cope with this situation. Because it's one thing having seven or eight species of microorganism in your gut. You know, the, the, the old so-called innate immune system could cope with that because the innate immune system had evolved in early eukaryotes and, and amoebian things. And what the innate immune system does is, is, is it encodes in the genes molecules that act as receptors for um, molecules present on microorganisms. But if some new microorganism evolves, which is different in structure, then you've got to duplicate that receptor molecule and then evolve a different structure in that receptor molecule so that it can now recognize the bacterium. And the trouble is that think how long that takes. A great lumbering creature like a vertebrate dealing with hundreds of thousands of different sorts of organism has got to suddenly start recognizing new organisms that are evolving very, very, very rapidly. And to do that by the mechanisms of the innate immune system, it would have to keep on producing more and more and more and more copies of these receptors encoded in its genes, and then modifying them to recognize the new forms of bacteria and virus that were evolving. It takes too long. We'd all be dead. It doesn't work. And it clusters up the genome with vast numbers of genes. It's the adaptive immune system, which vertebrates developed, had this incredibly difficult job of managing the vast numbers of organisms in the gut, farming them. The, 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 the immune system actually farms and manages these organisms, while at the same time excluding pathogens. And therefore, it had to be able to develop a, a repertoire incredibly fast and develop a new repertoire to cope with newly evolving microorganisms incredibly fast. After all, some bacteria divide every 20 minutes. You know, they can evolve new, new forms, new molecules incredibly rapidly. So what the adaptive immune system does is it actually works by a system of mutation. So instead of having to encode thousands and increasing numbers of thousands of different receptor molecules to recognize foreign things in the genome, 
what the adaptive immune system does is use mutation to actually create a vast repertoire of new receptors. So in other words, it, it, it randomly generates new molecules. Okay. And it's, it's astonishing to think of it. But of course, this has its problems because it means some of those new receptors that are developed by this random mutation process are useless. And if you kept them all, you know, because they're not going to bind to anything in the, in a, in, in, on, on planet Earth and probably not on Mars either. You know. so, so those get weeded out by a very complex mechanism. This is complicated enough, so I won't go into how that is done. Um, and then some of them will be dangerous because they recognize oneself. Those have to weed it out too. And there's a little, little organ called the thymus, which does most of the job of weeding out these unwanted ones. So now you're left with a lot of candidate ones which appear to recognize the kinds of molecule that actually exist in the environment of this new baby. And what is now needed is data from the environment that tells the system which of these, which of these receptors to actually expand, which cell types bearing these different receptors to expand and maintain in the immune system as the army to cope with infections from the future. And without data, this simply cannot happen. Okay, that's a nice analogy using the uh, computer and the data. It's been shown now, both in animal models and in, in, in a, by deduction from human systems, that if you or an animal have met a very large number of different bacteria, so you have a very large number of, of, of lymphocytes that have been expanded up into nice little armies. Sure. If you've met a very large number of bacteria, some of these little armies have a good chance of being able to recognize structures of some novel virus you've never met before. That's because essentially all life forms on planet Earth are actually derived from the same kinds of structure. So they, they may vary, they, they change subtly in structure in different organisms. But with luck, if you've got enough that recognize a diversity of bacteria, you will have some that recognize some virus you've never met before. And so that's really another reason why one has to have all this data from the environment. But then there are, so, so that's really why, why the, well, that's one of the reasons why we need exposure to all these organisms. But then there are a whole lot more reasons why the organisms from the environment do us so much good. Firstly, it's the organisms themselves, because there's lots of evidence that the more diverse your gut microbiota is, the healthier you are. Um, and so some of the microorganisms in the environment can in fact colonize and survive within the human gut. And in fact, a, a weird experiment has been done by a group in the States where they took germ-free animals and repopulated their gut with microorganisms from soil. And these animals actually did quite well. As soon as they were put with mice, with normal mouse microbiota, the normal mouse microbiota took over and they displaced these soil organisms because they were better adapted to the mouse. But nevertheless, when left to their own devices and not put with mice with normal mouse microbiota, the animals that were, had their gut microbiota replaced with soil microbiota actually did surprisingly well. Now, there's also the question of spores. And this is looking increasingly important because spores are little tiny, incredibly tough forms of certain bacterial strains. About a third of all the bacteria that live in the gut are spore formers. Now, spores can persist in the environment for hundreds, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of years. And it's been observed that spore-forming subset of organisms in the gut show a faster turnover than all the other organisms in the gut in terms of changing species and strains and numbers. In other words, say you've just been living on a perfectly awful diet for a while and swallowing antibiotics, the sort of thing that damages your gut microbiota. If you then go out into the natural environment, there's a chance that you are going to pick up spores from organisms that are human gut-adapted organisms. Because obviously, wherever humans have been, there's been a lot of poo, and wherever there's been a lot of human poo, there's a lot of human gut-adapted organisms, spores, lurking in that environment. Wow, that's fascinating. And one, to give you an example of why this could be incredibly important, a paper was published, I think, last week, where a group looked at the gut microbiota of people with multiple sclerosis. Now, it's been known for a while that the gut microbiota of people with multiple sclerosis looks a bit different from that of normal people, but nobody could quite put their finger on what that difference was. But it turns out that if you look 
at the spore-forming gut microbiota of normal individuals, these organisms are particularly good at driving the formation of regulatory T-cells, at driving the formation of the lymphocytes that regulate the immune system. But it turns out that the spore-forming organisms from the microbiota of multiple sclerosis patients not only fail to turn on the regulatory T-cells, it looks as they may even inhibit that process. And now, if that's right, that's fantastically exciting because it could mean that, but it, it could lead to working out how to deal with, 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 with the problem of multiple sclerosis. And of course, multiple sclerosis is very interesting because it also points towards the importance of the early years of life because it's been known for a long time that if you, are, if you spend the first, first years of your life, maybe you know, up to the age of about 13, in a, an area with high levels of multiple sclerosis, and then move to a country with low levels of multiple sclerosis, you retain the high chances of, of getting multiple sclerosis of the country in which you grew up. And the reverse is also true. If somebody from a low multiple sclerosis country is brought up there for the first 13 years of their life and then moves to a high multiple sclerosis country, they retain the low likelihood of multiple sclerosis of the country in which they were brought up. So it's, a, it's another example of how exposure to something in the environment, and we think it's the microorganisms, may be absolutely crucial. Yeah, and there's this uh, notion of functional redundancy, isn't there? So uh, if certain species or strains of bacteria die out, then there are other species that may fulfil the same kind of functional role as, as the uh, previous ones, which is one of the reasons why diversity might be really important. Yes, uh, the, the whole question of why we need the diversity in, in our gut microbiota is, is, is actually a, a difficult one. I've mentioned one reason why we're pretty sure it is true that diversity in its own right is important because the more different bacterial species you've met, the greater the repertoire of lymphocytes you will retain and, and can use in the future. But it's also possible, of course, that diversity is important because for reasons that we are not able yet to put our finger on, because the diversity might simply mean that certain crucial organisms that are present in relatively small numbers are more likely to be present if you've got a lot of species present than if you so don't. So more of an so, you know, the, perspective. All we know at the moment is that diversity seems to be good. Okay. So I've, I've mentioned the fact that we need to encounter microorganisms from the environment because they provide data. I've mentioned that they provide organisms. I've mentioned they provide specifically these spore-forming organisms. But there are several other things. One is that the organisms in the gut are extremely good at what is called horizontal gene transfer. Sure. That's to say they can pick up genetic material from other bacteria, even if that's a bacterium from which they diverged in an evolutionary sense millions of years ago. So the classic example of this, which is really very entertaining, is that many Japanese people can digest peculiar polysaccharides from seaweed. Now, it's not that Japanese people encode in their own genomes the enzymes that can digest these seaweed polysaccharides. Their genomes are no different from ours. It's that their gut bacteria have picked up the genes that encode these enzymes from marine organisms. Wow. I find the, the concept of horizontal gene transfer incredibly fascinating. Well, it is because it points out why one of the reasons why vertebrates probably evolved this very complex gut microbiota is that it gives us this extraordinary flexibility. If we do start to eat something quite extraordinary like seaweed, then no problem. It takes us too long to evolve the genes to digest these things, but our gut bacteria will say, OK, we need these genes, and they'll pick it up from, from the environment. Sure. And this is probably happening all the time in relation to other foodstuffs. As we eat new foodstuffs, if you go to a country where people are eating something peculiar that your population has never eaten before, it's exceedingly likely that your gut microbiota picks up from the spores and from the, the poo in the environment appropriate genes for digesting the peculiar things these people might be eating. So that's yet another thing then that we're picking up from, from the microbes in the environment. And then there's a very complicated one to do with signals. It turns out that the airways in particular, but also the gut, in early life, and we'll come a lot more to early life later, need to pick up signals that come from bacterial molecules, microbial molecules. There are, there are, you need to breathe in microbial molecules into the airways, and that then causes production of various mediators that I won't go into the detail of them, which actually increase the levels 
of certain mechanisms that help to control the immune system. The, 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 the whole, two different things are happening there when you breathe this stuff in, in fact. You, you also upregulate some of the protective mechanism in the, air, in the airways, but simultaneously you upregulate the police force that controls those mechanisms in the airways. And you need to do that early on in life. And it's fascinating that that was originally found in studies of, of mouse models. But I mentioned earlier the, the Hutterites and the Amish and the Amish were the ones who do encounter the natural environment on their forms because they, they farm in a traditional manner. They have higher levels of expression of exactly these molecules, these molecules that help to regulate the immune system in the airways. And we now know that the same is true in the gut as well. That really, I think, covers the five different things that the organisms from the natural environment are do, doing for us. Organisms, spores, genes, signals, and data. Great. So do you have any thoughts on uh, viruses, for example, bacteriophages, and how these might uh, be important in this relationship? Well, the whole question of viruses in this story is, is complex and really not yet tra- studied enough. That it's going to be very important too. I mean, for instance, just to give a sort of taster for this, it's clear that there are some viruses that in um, hunter-gatherer days every baby would have picked up immediately from its mother at birth at a time when it was covered by um, maternal antibody, which crosses the placenta. And it seems that then it's no problem to the baby. But there's some evidence now that some of these infections, because you don't pick them up from your mother, that you pick them up maybe later in childhood, when perhaps the maternal antibody has gone, and also your immune system didn't evolve in any case to cope with these particular viruses at this later stage. Um, maybe they're causing a problem. This is one theory about acute lymphatic leukemia, is that, in fact, it's something to do with delayed, delayed infection with certain viruses. So the whole virus story is incredibly important. And there's also the question of what the viruses do to the turnover of microorganisms in our gut, which bacteriophages, because that's an extraordinarily interesting story. For instance, there tends to be the assumption that the more numerous a particular bacterial strain is in the gut, the more important it is. But it might not be that simple, because an organism of which there are large numbers in the gut might simply be an organism that is not dying off very fast, whereas other organisms are being killed off very rapidly by bacteriophages, that is to say viruses that infect bacteria. So there might be an organism that appears to be quite low in level in the gut, but which is in fact replicating at a fantastic rate, being destroyed at a fantastic rate, in which case its components, its cell wall components, its active molecules, may be hitting the host at very high levels. Right, yeah, so maybe there are a lack of bacteriophages that are predating on these uh, bacteria. Yeah, so we need to know a lot more about what, about the role of human viruses in, 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 our, in our health and about bacterial viruses in our health. But I don't think there's not more, at least I personally, I'm not able to go further into that subject. Yeah. Okay, so what are your thoughts on what exactly is going wrong in the uh, modern world in terms of our exposure or lack of with environmental microbiota? The question of why we are no longer encountering the appropriate microorganisms from the environment is, of course, absolutely crucial. And it's, it's really important to make these points because it helps to kill the idea that what is going wrong is hygiene. It's really not hygiene. Um, so firstly... One of the most important is going to turn out to be antibiotics. Because if you give antibiotics during pregnancy or during the early months, years of life, you are going to alter the baby's microbiota. And we'll come on to why early childhood is important. And then there are things like caesarean sections, where, of course, the baby is no longer exiting via the normal route and is not exposed in the same way to the mother's vaginal and faecal microbiota. And then on top of that, there is breastfeeding. Breastfeeding actually transmits some bacteria to the gut. Breast milk is not sterile. And moreover, breast milk contains some interesting prebiotic polysaccharides, which are not actually digestible by the baby. The baby can't digest these things, which is astounding. So why are they made? Why are they being produced by maternal milk? The answer is because they feed and encourage the growth of the organisms that are needed in the baby's gut. So 
All of these things are, are relevant to early life. Then there's the question of diet. A diversity of diet is crucial. Some recent archaeological studies, I think from about 13,000 BC in the Euphrates Valley, have been able to look at how many different plants and animals people were eating. And I think it was something like 90 different plants were being eaten and hundreds of different animal species. And, you know, you need to ask yourself how many different plants you consumed in, in the last week. I bet it'll be a long way from 90. And of course, if biodiversity is important, then a diversity of nutrients for the microorganisms is important. And also, of course, the foodstuffs themselves bring you a diversity of microorganisms. And fermented foods, which of course, before refrigerators, most food was fermented to a greater or lesser extent. That again brought us a huge diversity of microorganisms. And then diet is crucially important also because fibre which is a word that you see in the newspapers without anybody explaining what it means. Fibre simply means plant cell walls. Though, of course, it can be in the form of molecules that are entirely soluble. I, I came across a lady who was terrified of putting anything in a blender because she thought this was going to destroy the fibre. It's not like that. Don't worry about your blender. Fibre could be entirely soluble. You could have a, a clear, watery solution that looked just like water that could have fibre in it. It's, it's the molecular components of plant cell walls. But the point about fibre is that, again, we can't really digest most of this. But the bacteria that we really need to have in our guts can and do, and when they digest this material, they produce things called short-chain fatty acids, which are crucial to our health. They are absorbed by the host. They send signals of various types all around the body. They're crucial to our physiology. And they also feed the gut epithelium, which needs to be healthy as well. So we really do need fiber. And if you don't eat fiber for long enough, eventually these crucial organisms become extinct. They're not there in your gut anymore. And um, this has been demonstrated in, in experimental models, but it would certainly be true of humans as well. Sure. So these are the kinds of things that are going wrong. We're not meeting the organisms from the natural environment. We're eating the wrong diets. We're taking antibiotics. And we're... And, and where cesarean sections and lack of breastfeeding, none of these things has a huge effect on its own. Um, and so, you know, people who have not breastfed their babies shouldn't suddenly start feeling worried and guilty. It's this accumulation. When you put all of these things together, you start to see quite large effects. So it's the general lifestyle then? Yes, it's general lifestyle. And the, perhaps the only situation where hygiene itself might perhaps be significant is when hygiene blocks transmission of maternal microbiota to the baby, because this is absolutely crucial. And all species go to enormous lengths to make sure that the microbiota is transmitted to the baby. One of the best examples of this has to be the koala bear, because koala bears eat this very peculiar diet of eucalyptus leaves, which are indigestible and toxic. So the only way baby koala is going to be able to survive on this diet is if he inherits the microbiota of the mother because it's not the koala bear's enzymes so much that deal with it. This is, this is a bit like the, the, the seaweed story, isn't it? It's, it's the microbiota that deal with it. So what happens is that the koala baby is happily maturing in, in, in the marsupial pocket. And when it gets big enough, it pokes its head out and reaches down. The mother twists her pelvis up and produces a special kind of feces, which for some reason is called pap. And the, and the baby eats these feces as a way of taking on board this absolutely essential microbiota. And once it's got that lot on board, it can now cope with a diet of eucalyptus leaves. And you get the same kind of thing, um, for instance, um, dolphins. How does a dolphin mother pass her microbiota onto the baby when the baby is actually born in the sea? And the answer is she defecates massively at the moment of birth to make sure that the baby takes on some of that microbiota. Wow. So hygiene that blocks microbiota transmission to the baby may not be a good thing. But every other form of hygiene is absolutely crucial to health and should be encouraged. And like vaccines, it is the other main thing that medicine has done for mankind. And another way in which microorganisms from the environment and also from the parents get transmitted to um, the, the vertebrate gut is through eating soil. This was enormously studied in relation to the green iguana because the green iguana defecates quite a lot around its burrow. So the baby, when it's born, eats soil and in the process eats a lot of parental feces. So it's another way of getting the microorganisms into the, the, the young iguana. But of course, human babies eat soil too. 
And some people will know that Sigmund Freud had some magnificently silly ideas about what this must be. But it's much more likely that this is an instinctive thing that all vertebrates do. And in fact, a, a, a group has studied how much soil a baby left to its own devices will actually consume. And they came up with a figure of something like 20 grams a day. <laughs> really? That sounds like a lot. <laughs> it's astonishing. <laughs> Okay, so should we talk about early life exposure? So early life microbial exposure and how that affects health in later life? Yes, well, I, I, I mentioned earlier that, that there's, there's evidence that it's what happens in early life that seems to affect your immunoregulation. And I mentioned if you come from a low multiple sclerosis country in early life, then you keep that low risk. Um, it turns out that there is indeed a critical period during early life when various epigenetic and developmental things actually occur. Um, for instance, there was a magnificent experiment that was done um, with mice where the, the pregnant mother was exposed to penicillin for, well, during, preg well, during pregnancy and then for the first four weeks after the birth of the babies. And what they observed was that during the period of exposure to penicillin, there was a transient change in the nature of the microbiota, which is not surprising. Mm -hmm. But then the microbiota recovered, and the microbiota was, became apparently normal. Okay. But although the change in the microbiota was transient, they found that there was a permanent defect in the function of the immune system, and a permanent defect or permanent change in the regulation of certain enzymes in the liver, so that by not having the right microbiota at a certain critical period in the early months of life, something happened to the regulation of metabolic and immunological pathways. The result of this was rather serious because the animals that had been given the penicillin in early life, although their microbiota now became normal again, put on more weight, more fat was put down in their tissues. Now you may say, well, okay, but what about humans? Well, it turns out that there's lots of epidemiology showing that the same thing is true in humans, that there's a greater tendency to put on weight in children who were exposed in early life, we say the perinatal period, that's you know even before you are born, but also after you're born, they put on more weight if they're exposed multiple occasions. Okay, that's really fascinating. There's been a, what's called a, a, a meta-analysis of many, many studies of this phenomenon, which has come to the conclusion that in fact there's an almost linear relationship between the numbers of exposures to antibiotics in early life and the tendency to become obese in later life. So this implies that exactly the same thing is true in humans as it is in mice, that it's the early life period which is critical. So do you want to talk more about mouse models then? So what we've learned from animal models in terms of microbial exchange and how this affects health? Well, indeed, the, the, it's one thing to say that antibiotics are causing long-term effects in people and animals and that therefore that must be to do with something, a change in the microbiota. That makes sense, but it isn't absolute proof. The way to really prove that the microbiota is critically involved in all this process is to do microbiota transfers. In other words, you take an animal that has a condition, an illness of some kind, and you transfer that microbiota, the microbiota from that diseased animal, into a germ-free animal, say an, an animal, in other words, that has no microbiota, and see what happens. And what happens is very straightforward. The symptoms of the disorder that you were that you've seen in your donor animals appears in the recipient animals. This first emerged in a whole host of studies where people were making genetic changes in mice, which caused the mice to develop all sorts of inflammatory disorders. Sure. And then they found that they could transfer the disorder to germ-free animals that had not had the genetic change. They were completely genetically normal. All you needed to do was transfer the microbiota. In other words, although the genetic change was leading to a change in the microbiota, it was actually the changed microbiota that was mediating the disorder. And then they went on to show you could take microbiota from fat mice and give them to germ-free mice and the germ-free mice become fat or from thin mice and give them to germ-free mice and the germ-free mice stay thin. And that's all of them having on the same diet, of course. But the, but the real killer, as far as proving the point where humans are concerned, is that you can do the same experiment transferring microbiota from humans to the germ-free mice. For instance, if you take microbiota from obese humans and from skinny humans, 
transfer them into two sets of germ-free mice and then put all the mice on the same diet, the ones that received the microbiota from the obese donors the obese human donors put on more weight than the ones that received the microbiota from the skinny human donors. And even more astonishing, and it really comes back to our initial interest in immunoregulation and microorganisms and psychiatric disease, is that this has been found that whether you use um, microbiota-depleted rats, which have just been treated by antibiotics to deplete their microbiota as the recipients, or whether you use germ-free mice as the recipients, if you take microbiota from depressed humans or from happy humans and give them to these animals, the, the recipients of the microbiota from the depressed humans show signs of well, behavioral changes which are the, we know are the mouse equivalent of depression, whereas the ones with the microbiota from the human, the, the, the happy humans, do not. Okay, cheers, Graham, for all this. So this is a question that I ask most of my guests. So if you had ultimate power or ultimate budget, what were some of the things you would do to improve public health? I think that the, the, the key things to help sort out this problem that we're not encountering the right microorganisms anymore are, are fairly clear. Um, one of the first things to do would be to find ways of controlling antibiotic use, um, which really is theoretically entirely possible. What we need, for instance, and it's going to come before many decades are up, we need ways of doing a diagnosis of an infection that is done with a kind of probe that will sequence the DNA at the site of infection, work out exactly what organisms are present, then consult the internet, where it will consult a sort of, um, you know, the global database of everything that is known about that particular organism. It will then know exactly what will kill that organism and no other. So the first thing is super-targeting by means of super-diagnosis. And none of this nonsense of people going in and be given an antibiotic for a virus infection because the GP is frightened that there might be something else going on. So then, of course, there's the, the other bit of research related to this is that we need to find antibiotics which are totally specific so that once your probe has told you which organism is causing the trouble, you will also know exactly which antibiotic will kill that organism and no other organism. So that's the future of dealing with infection. So then there's the fact that I think we need to have more understanding of what hygiene is all about. Clearly, I keep emphasizing the point that hygiene is crucial. Um, for instance, if your child has just been pulling the guts out of an uncooked chicken, you know, you, you want that child to wash their hands extremely thoroughly and probably more than once, and also everything else that has been in contact with the guts of that uncooked chicken. On the other hand, if your baby has just dropped its dummy on the floor, all you need to do is pick it up, suck it clean, and plug it back in. And in fact, there's been a lovely study in Scandinavia showing that if you do that, the baby's microbiota starts to resemble that of the mother more quickly. And in fact, the, such babies are less likely to become allergically sensitized to things. So in other words, what you're doing there is kind of facilitating the transfer of maternal microbiota. So in other words, any hygiene that stops that process is a bad idea. But any hygiene that stops you from being infected with things that you don't want to be infected by is a good idea. And it's, it's not that difficult, I think, to, to, for, for people to understand that. Now, the next thing I would say is that we need education about diet. And that's a problem because it takes generations in a way. Children tend to like what their parents are eating. Um, maybe sort of tastes evolve in utero. I think it's entirely possible. So, you know, what your parents are eating then becomes what you like to eat, and so it goes on through life. And it's clearly essential that people start to eat a much more varied diet, um, lots of fruit and lots of veg. I mean, people hear all this stuff all the time, and they, but they don't think they take much notice of it. It's particularly the, the vegetables, the so-called fiber that I've talked about. So that, again, is a matter of education, and it's very difficult to know how to do it. And then there's the question of green space. And one of the problems is that every time somebody succeeds in persuading government systems to produce more green space, what they do is knock down the low-cost housing and replace it with beautiful parks for wealthy people to enjoy themselves in. And this isn't really solving the problem. 
the fact is that the, the wealthy guys have probably got a country house anyway or a beautiful house in southwest France, and so they get plenty of exposure to green space. What we need is to help the poorer parts of the community to contact green space, and it's not that difficult. There are lots and lots of ways of doing it. For a start, there are green rooftops. This is something that they're doing more and more, for instance, in Paris. If a company is about to build a huge, great big warehouse, which is really just a great big rectangular box... Why not put green space on top? It's actually rather good insulation. It also helps to absorb water during rain downpours, which is good because it, it delays the water getting into the drains. What happens in London is that every time it rains, there's so much runoff into the drains that the drains overflow and the poo goes into the Thames. Of course, measures are being taken to try and do something about that, but this is what happens regularly at the moment. So... Green rooftops are good. You don't even have to give the public access to the green rooftop if you don't want to. Um, but it provides microorganisms wafting from the green rooftop in, in, into the surrounding area. And then there's an organisation which I greatly admire in London call, called something like Edible Bus Stop. This is a fantastic notion. Bus stops tend to be in particularly gloomy parts of great long streets why not just let that bus stop have a little bit more space and plant things there? Clever architects can do a lot with an amazingly small area. A bus stop is where people sit and wait because the bus tends not to come. And they talk to one another if it's a beautiful environment. And if it's beautiful, they like it and they don't damage it because they take sort of ownership of it and they enjoy it. The edible bus stop is a fantastically simple idea which would provide green space for everybody. And then there are vertical gardens on walls. Um, there must be better ways of doing that. They're quite difficult to maintain, and maybe they increase the number of spiders that come into the building. I'm sure they do. But nevertheless, they, they look quite wonderful. And then there are some other technological things which need to be thought about. We're very good at making air conditioning systems that infect us with bacteria we don't want to meet, like Legionella. Well, for heaven's sake, if we can make systems that infect us with bacteria we don't want, why can't we make air conditioning systems that distribute the organisms that we do want? It can't be that difficult. I know that there are some people thinking about such systems. Sure. So I've been thinking recently about designing green spaces in order to enhance our exposure to these microbial communities. So I've called it microbiome-inspired green infrastructure. Well, absolutely. Well, so that's another area of research that we need is, is to, to understand more about exactly what we need in the green space. I mean, the only clue we have is that, as I've said earlier, humans almost certainly evolved in wooded grassland beside water. So whatever microorganisms occur in wooded grassland beside water are likely the kind of microorganisms that we want. But how do we translate that into the kind of trees that we would put in huge pots in city squares or in, in the central reservations in roads? I mean, there must be a lot of green that we can actually put into our environment. And then another, another one which I was thinking about the other day is showerheads. Um, we now know that showerheads spray all sorts of organisms into the, uh, the environment of our bathrooms, and a lot of those organisms are actually potentially pathogens. Some of them, especially if your showerhead is very, very old, a lot of them are, are mycobacteria of the wrong sort, the sort that in certain individuals can actually produce sort of opportunistic um, infections. And that may not be a good thing. So again, showerheads, we could think harder about showerheads and think of ways in which they could actually distribute into the atmosphere because you know, you've got a lot of aerosol formation, things that are, are actually good for us. And then there's a, another area which I think is becoming more and more important, and that is the whole question of environmental pollutants. And this is something that I think is, is, is suddenly beginning to hit us. I, I was invited to come and talk to the European Commission about this recently, and I was fairly horrified by what, what, what I learned. For instance... We now know that the levels of the kinds of chemicals that are involved in industry, in um, cosmetics, in plastics, or that are used in agriculture, the, amount of, the levels of these in our environment are now so high that the CDC has published, well, it publishes every few years, a report on the actual measurable levels of these things in our blood and in our urine. And the levels are absolutely astounding. The only one they don't report in the CDC report is actually glyphosate. Now, that's fascinating because glyphosate, you know, the component of Roundup, is almost certainly not causing 
meaningful cancer. That's a, a nonsense due to a sort of a mass movement trying to hit Monsanto. Um, it's a nonsense. That glyphosate is no more carcinogenic than barbecued sausages, probably. But what most people don't realize is that glyphosate was originally patented as an antibacterial. And in fact, a recent paper has shown that there are measurable levels of this stuff in the blood of 90% of pregnant women, in the urine, I should say, of 90% of pregnant women tested in the United States. Now, this may be entirely harmless. I do not know that it is not entirely harmless. But glyphosate is an antibacterial, and experimentally, it actually distorts at sufficient doses, it distorts the microbiota both of the natural environment and of animals to, to which it is exposed. Is it having an effect on the human microbiota at a level that matters to us? I don't know, and nor does anybody else. My guess is probably not. But there are so many of these chemicals now that are polluting our environments, polluting our urine, polluting our blood, all of which can be shown to affect the microbiota that it's possible that we are, yeah, that, that in combination, that they're, they're causing effects. We know, for instance, that in parks in China, they tend to water the parks with partially recycled water, which still contains appreciable levels of antibiotics, which we're putting out into our drains the whole time. And that has been sufficient to have a distinct effect on the microbiota of these, this parkland, because you can actually show an increase in the expression of anti antibiotic resistance genes in the microbiota of these parklands. And again, antibiotic resistance genes, quite apart from the changes in the microbiota itself, which might be bad for us, the antibiotic resistance genes are therefore increasing in the environment, making us more susceptible maybe to infections that we might not be able to treat. So this is a huge area that really needs to be, be attacked and explored in enormous detail. Maybe it's a false alarm but it could be immensely important. One of the things that is making us deeply suspicious that there may be something going on here is the fact that we know that distortion of the microbiota is one of the things that can lead to obesity and to type 2 diabetes. Now, in countries like India, in the last 10 years, there has been a doubling of the incidence of type 2 diabetes and obesity, and that's peculiar because they haven't adopted all the other aspects of the Western lifestyle that are denying us exposure to microorganisms you know, that, that we have in a country like the United Kingdom. On the other hand, they are using industrial and agricultural chemicals in a remarkably unregulated way. So could it be that it's the exposure to these chemicals that is doing something to their health and causing these massive increases in type 2 diabetes and, and obesity? It remains to be seen, but it could be. Okay. Um, well, Graeme, is there anything else you'd like to talk about or anything you'd like to promote on the podcast? Well, the particular bee that I have in my bonnet is that governments have no understanding of what the word poverty really means. Governments think that poverty is to do with the actual income that a particular family has, but in fact that's not the way humans work. It's always said that where everybody is poor, nobody is poor. And we now know that it's all to do really with inequality. And in a society where you let one section of society get more and more wealthy relative to the others, even if the people at the bottom of the scale are also, in terms of their actual income, increasing their income, increasing their wealth, they will still get sick. It's an extraordinary phenomenon that has been shown repeatedly by epidemiological studies. In other words, it's not the, even if letting the rich get richer and richer and richer does have some trickle down so that the people at the bottom are also getting slightly richer. If the inequality gap gets bigger and bigger and bigger, although they're getting slightly richer, the people at the bottom get sicker. They become psychiatrically sick and they become physically sick. It's an astonishing fact, but it's true. In other words, you cannot solve the problem by simply letting the rich get richer. And in fact, what you get, of course, is people protesting against the system and doing silly things which are not going to solve their problem, like voting for Brexit or voting for Donald Trump. Unfortunately, both things are going to make the, the, the gap wider. The people after Brexit, the rich will get richer, the poor will get slightly richer, or possibly not, but they are going to feel poorer. 
and the problems will get worse. Sure, yeah. Have you heard of the uh, Glasgow effect? So it's this phenomenon in, in Glasgow, obviously, where there are two neighbourhoods really close to each other, and in one, the average life expectancy is something in the 70s or 80s, and in the other, the average life expectancy is way down in the 50s. It's a really, really stark example of the health inequalities between two neighbourhoods that are really close to each other. Yes, and there's a similar story where I've forgotten which underground line it is in London, but you know, every every sort of mile you go down that line, the life expectancy of the people you see out of your out of your window windows is decreasing by a year. Inequality is a killer. It, it makes people unhealthy. Graham, uh, thank you very much for joining me on the show. You've been absolutely amazing. Uh, thank you very much for your time. 